You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, Lesson 22. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Let's do a real quick rehearsal of where we are in the homiletics curriculum. Way back years ago, you had Prependel, and uh, that's where basically I lectured at you on basics of sermon construction. And we said it's just kind of like if you're in med school, you're getting the anatomy lesson, right? You're getting all the the pieces and the names for all the bones and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we acknowledge that there's a lot of Oh, artificiality to that, even as we were kind of learning those basic tools. But then we moved into elementary practicum, and we began to practice using those tools. So we all acknowledged to each other it was the basics. But we tried to make it a little more natural by actually going to the reduced forms. Remember that? We went from those big, long, boxy statements of because something is true, do something about it, principle and application. And then we said in elementary, you know, chop those things in half. Proposition is just the anchor clause, and the main points are the developing clauses or the magnet clauses. Sounds like prep and delegate, doesn't it? You know, just for all those things, and we try to make things much shorter, and we preach from the epistles only, because they're often kind of linear paragraph in thought, and you break up the thought into its subsets, and it's kind of a good way to start learning how biblical thought develops. Now we're in Christ-centered. And we're way back in Prependel, I said, we're going to talk about structure, but we're not going to talk much about the theology of preaching. Now that we've got structures in place, we are ready to do the theology. So we're going to have four lectures in which we are dealing with the theology that's behind preaching. And then having lectured on the theology, we'll now practice with the theology involved, still the reduced form, but now going to narratives. So this semester, we're only preaching from narratives. Um, three-quarters of the Bible are the narratives, right? The stories of people interacting with people. So three-quarters of the Bible, we want to be ready to preach that. And ultimately, we're heading toward the advanced practicum where there's a little more lecturing, but it's going to be on creativity. So now that you know, you know what all the paintbrushes are and what the color wheel looks like, we'll say, all right, now mix and match. You know, what's the tool? What, what's best for your job, for your personality, for the, even the style of passage that you're doing? So we'll do a whole lot more on creativity and talk about missional preaching as well. Preaching cross-culturally, preaching in a postmodern culture, preaching to the unchurched. So we'll do missional understanding as well. And having lectured on those things, we'll then practice creativity and mission. But where we are right now is here. We've got some structure in place, hopefully fairly well now. So we're ready to introduce some theology and think how that integrates what we do in the practice of preaching. So let's uh, pray and we'll move forward. Father, how I praise you for these men who come to give their lives to you. What you have shared to them, the wonderful glories of the grace of Christ, they want to share with others. And they've dedicated their lives, their resources, much time and energy 
to preparation for such a grand task. Would you bless them in that? Would you enable and equip them by the mercies of your spirit, by the wonders of your grace, and by the power that you alone can provide to fulfill the tasks to which you call them? Teach them much of your grace that they will need this semester and beyond to do this work. For apart from you, they can do nothing. Help them, we pray. May they lean upon you and know the fulfillment of doing so. In Jesus' name, amen. An old story, as old as Anselm, tells of a king who stood on his balcony one day and looked out and saw his youngest child out gathering flowers. The child the king knew was preparing a bouquet for the king himself. But as the king watched the child kind of go through the fields, he noticed that sometimes the child picked the wrong things. Uh, A briar got added to the flowers or uh, something with thorns in it or a patch of ivy. And so the king went to his elder son, the younger child's older brother, and he said, go to my garden. Pick my flowers. And when your youngest sibling comes, take the flowers that he's gathered and put your flowers in its place. The elder brother did that. child came, presented the new bouquet to the king. And the king received the child with joy and the flowers with deep pleasure. The king, of course, is God. We are the child. The elder brother, Christ. The weeds and the briars and the thorns, our best works. And the flowers from the king's garden, Christ's righteousness. It's what he does that makes what we do acceptable and pleasing to God. And that's a very simple notion that can be very difficult to preach. How is it that you tell people to pick flowers for the king, to do what they're supposed to do to please him, and at the same time depend on the work of the older brother? How do you compel and motivate? How do you tell and at the same time instruct to lean on another? If you will, that's so much of what we're trying to do in Christ-centered preaching. He's reminding people where the best flowers, the only ones really acceptable to the king, come from. If you look at the beginning of the lecture, you see the primary goal of this lesson is to see the overarching plan that is the reason we have constructed sermons according to the design We have followed thus far. Now, just to remind you a little bit of some of those design features, we talked early on in Prependel about the principle of a fallen condition focus. Thus far, we've made 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 a key to understanding any text's purpose. If we say, what's a text about, we don't have to guess. The Bible itself tells us all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be, here's the hard word, perfect. Now, that's the King James. That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That word 
perfect is the Greek artios, and it carries with it the notion of completeness. All scripture is given to complete us. And you may remember we said if the Bible is saying that it's given to complete us, there's a necessary implication about us. What is it? That we are incomplete. We are incomplete. And that's in your notes. All scripture is intended to complete us in some way by leading to salvation or advancing sanctification. The necessary implication is that we are incomplete. We are fallen creatures in a fallen condition. And God's redemptive work in scripture is making us whole in ways we cannot by ourselves. For preaching, it means we begin to look at people and see Swiss cheese. Remember? They got holes in them. They're incomplete. And what we have to discern in preaching is, what are we going to say fills the holes? As I'm looking at somebody who's incomplete, who's not all that God yet intends, what will I tell them makes them complete? You work real hard. You you do the best you can. Practice these disciplines. Be more holy than the next guy. Ultimately, It will not work if we say what you do is going to fill the holes. Something else has to fill the holes. And understanding that is pushing us to another kind of preaching than what many preachers do. Many preachers approach a text with only two thoughts in mind. What can I do from this text? I can tell you right doctrine to believe or right acts to do. Now, if that's all I'm saying, here's how you're going to fill the holes. You accept and know this doctrine or you do this right behavior, you have to recognize both of those are actually just forms of human legalism. It's what you know or what you do that makes you right with God. And even though what you do may be right, and what you know might be right, you must know that it's not you who make things right with God. You can't fill the holes. And so when we begin looking at the text, kind of moving into this next portion of Christ-centered preaching, we have to think of what that theology means for preaching. If all that's in my brain is I'm supposed to be feeding these people right doctrine or instructing them in right behavior, something is still missing. There's a hole in our own preaching, and we want to discern what that is. To uh, follow in your notes after the Swiss cheese effect. Thus, all scripture dealing with this incompleteness and all expository preaching designed to reflect the meaning of a scriptural passage addresses aspects of humanity's fallen condition. Our goal in expounding a text is to determine not only what it says, but why it was written. And what we spiritually share in common with, in common with those for or about whom it was written, or the one by whom it was written. So I'm looking at the text and saying, they got holes in them. How are they like us? The ones either by whom the text was written or to whom it was written. Thus far, recognize we've only discussed the negative. Do you hear that? We've only discussed the absence, the wrong, the whole, the fallen condition. We've only discussed the negative. But if all scripture focuses on some aspect of our fallen condition, why does it do so? Well, the answer is clear. To supply the warrant and the need for the redemptive elements scripture contains to be applied. Thus, just as every scripture echoes our incompleteness, it is in some manner, of course, that's the key phrase, it's in some manner signaling the Savior's work, which makes us whole. 
Our goal in redemptive preaching is to decipher these signals. For until we do so, we do not truly understand our text. It is possible, after all, to say all the right words and send all the wrong signals. If you were to get up very early, even now on a weekday morning, and listen to CamelX, the CBS affiliate here in town, kind of the major radio station, if you were there just as they kind of go from you know, early morning program, excuse me, late night program to early morning program, there's always a program that is called the Thought for the Day. I don't know if you've heard that. The Thought for the Day is given every weekday morning by a man named Richard Evans. And Richard Evans will say things like, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. The Bible tells you you should not exasperate your children. And the word exasperate actually is a, reserve, is a word that God reserves for his own anger toward his people when they do not do the things they ought to do. And you should not give your children cause for exasperation with you. That you would be hypocritical, requiring things and then not obeying them themselves, yourself. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Or I'll say, um, employees, when you work today... You shouldn't just work because your boss is good and kind. Listen, even if he's not, the Bible says you should work as unto the Lord. It's really him that you're trying to serve. Now, in my mind's eye, I kind of see, you know, lots of Christians, as well as other people, commuting down Highway 40 into the city. And, you know, and and the Christians are all doing the same thing as Richard Evans talks. You know what they're doing? They're nodding their heads. That's right, Richard, you tell them. You tell them. You straighten them up. Maybe they'll listen today. But there's just a couple of problems with Richard Evans. First problem is he's dead. He died years ago. This is all recorded. And you may remember it's, it's, it's turned very high up on the reverberation, so it sounds almost like it's direct from Sinai. Remember that? You know? Fathers do not. You know, it's just really impressive. But Richard Evans' other problem is that he is not and never was a Christian. Richard Evans was a leader of the Mormon church. He was head of a large cult. And he said, whoa, 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 wait. He's saying so many right things. He's giving such wonderful biblical instruction. You know, the problem is almost never with what Richard Evans says. What's the problem? what he doesn't say. There are certain things that he will never get around to saying. If it comes to human performance, if it comes to good things that good people ought to do, he's on the money every time. But there are certain aspects of grace, the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our past that will never be mentioned. And that's the problem. My concern is that so often in evangelical preaching, in our preaching, we are, when it comes to the behaviors, even some of the doctrine, right on the money. But when it comes to our dependence on someone else, someone else's works, not gathering our flowers, but depending on the flowers gathered for us by the elder, that's just absent from our own messages. And the trouble is we're trying to be true to the text. The text just said, fathers, do not exasperate your children. And I said, fathers, do not exasperate your children. How could that be wrong? I just said what the text said. And to discern why that's wrong, 
we have to keep going forward. And that's uh, page two of your notes. We need to talk about the nature of redemptive preaching, which is still going to look at the text, but now in ways you might not have thought of. Some of you practice this. Others of you, it may be somewhat new. If you think about the nature of redemptive interpretation of Scripture, you, you might compare it to looking at the Scriptures through two different kinds of lenses. Now, I'm, what I'm about to say to you is caricature, and I'm going to acknowledge it's caricature. Kind of get the meaning without pushing the, the image too far, okay? One way of looking at a text is looking at it with a magnifying glass, okay? We get down very close to the text, and we say, what's the tense of that verb? What case is that noun? Is that an objective or a subjective genitive? Uh, where was that place? And who was Artaxerxes? And we get right down close and we look very much at the details. Now, listen to me. That is a good and necessary thing to do. And historically, that's what we often think of a systematic, exegetical approach to Scripture being. I look very closely at the details. Now, again, let me say, good and necessary thing to do. But there is another way of looking at the text. Another way of looking at the text would be if you looked at it through a fisheye lens. Photographers, if you look at something through a fisheye lens, what do you see? Yeah, Kyle's even showing me this. You, you, you look out, you see the horizons, right? And biblical theology is really the process of looking at the text with the fisheye lens so that you're always forced to look out to the horizons. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too intimidating because what you're really saying is you keep looking at the text in its context. Why does every heretic have his verse? Because he takes it out of context, right? What, what biblical theology is doing, another way of looking at the text and coming in very close in detail, is saying, what's the context of this thing? Yeah, I need to know that exasperation is a term that God reserves for his own anger toward Israel. That's a good thing for me to know. But what's the context of that verse? Where does it fit in the larger message? And just to look at your notes here, it's important to see this. That discipline of Bible interpretation that emphasizes the overarching themes that unite all of Scripture's particulars is called biblical theology. Biblical theology is not simply asking what truth does this particular passage reveal, but how is it related to the whole message of Scripture? Got that? How is it related to the whole message of Scripture? Primary writer on biblical theology in the last century was Gerhardus Voss, and you read some of Voss here. But his book, Biblical Theology, is addressing these forms of interpretation, and he began to identify standard principles of interpretation that are necessary for biblical theology to be done. The first one, this is under item B, the first he called the progressive principle. The progressive principle. He said this, Biblical theology is that branch of exegetical theology. Now, what you, what you just had there is savvy politics. Okay? Biblical theology is that branch of exegetical theology. Gerhardus Voss, the first professor of biblical theology at Princeton Seminary. You had all these New Testament exegetes, Old Testament exegetes already, and now there's this guy that comes in for biblical theology. 
And he, you know, a little suspect. What are you going to do that's different than we've done all these years? And so Voss, kind of with a little bit of savvy, begins his inaugural lecture, which became the first, the preface, actually, to the book Biblical Theology. He said, hey, don't get worried. I'm just doing exegesis. That's all I'm doing. It's just another form of exegesis. I'm still looking at what the text says. So he just wanted to say, I'm, I'm still examining the meaning of the text. Biblical theology is that branch of exegetical theology which deals with the process of the self-revelation of God deposited in the Bible. That's interesting. God is revealing himself. That's what he's doing in the Bible. Revelation is a noun of action relating to divine activity. Revelation is an historically progressive process A long series of successive acts. Now, a lot of big words going by, but it's it's just this simple. He's saying it gets clearer over time. God is revealing himself, and it gets clearer over time. If you were to put it in its most simple terms, you would say, when it comes to understanding God's revelation, Paul knew more than Samson. It doesn't mean what Samson knew was wrong. But Paul knows more. There's been a progression. God has progressively revealed more of himself through the course of the scriptural revelation. The second principle, Voss said, was the organic principle. The organic principle. He said the progressive process is organic. Revelation may be in seed form, which yields later full growth. Accounting for diversity, that is, the seed may seem different than the full fruit. It may seem different, but not true difference. Because the earlier aspects of truth are indispensable for understanding the true meanings of the later forms and vice versa. Another way of saying it, it's all tied together. The organic principle, it's all tied together. In order to understand what comes later... You have to understand what came before. But by the way, you understand what came before because of what happens later. They explain each other. Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, how do you know what that means? Well, because you remember what he's talking about. Remember Moses leading the people of Israel? They're in the desert, they're tired of wandering, and they're tired of the manna. Oh no, Lord, more manna. And and emblematic of the poison that is coming from their lips, vipers come and strike them, and they're dying. And God says to Moses, lift up a serpent. This thing that is emblematic of their sin. You fashion this serpent of metal and lift it up on a post and tell them to look at it and they'll live. You depend on what God provides and you'll live, even despite the venom that's come from you. And Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Which means what? You must look to me to live. I'm the answer to your poison. I know what Jesus meant because of what happened in Moses' time. 
the brazen serpent explains what Jesus means. But by the way, I understand more of what the brazen serpent is about by the way that Jesus uses it. The, the background of Moses explains what Jesus is talking about, but Jesus is explaining what Moses' background is about. They're explaining each other at the same time. Keep going. The final principle for Voss was the redemptive principle. He said this, Revelation is inseparably linked to the activity of redemption. Now, that's important. God is not just showing himself to be showing himself. Right? He's not just saying, here's another attribute. Go memorize it. Here's another attribute of my nature. You're going to have to take a test. No, he's saying, the revelation is inseparably related to redemption. What God is revealing about himself is related to redemptive processes. So, revelation, he says, is the interpretation of redemption. To see revelation properly, we must see it in its redemptive context. The context... And the content of some revelation may be in seed form as it relates to redemption, but it is intricately related to the mature message and is not properly understood or communicated until this relationship is made clear. Now, that's just absolutely crucial. The revelation is intricately related to redemption. So anything that God is saying is related to a redemptive message. Now, of course, the hard part is figuring that out. In what way is it related to a redemptive message? But it's understanding it's not just there for some future test. It's not just we'll receive it for information. The revelation is saying something about what God is doing redemptively. Now, Voss concedes right away. He says, he says that revelation, as it relates to redemption, may just be in seed form. It may not appear to be much about redemption. It may just be this little bitty seed message. But it's still connected. And he's saying you don't really understand the seed until you connect it to its mature form. Um, on the campus, let's see if I've still got it. I picked up, I picked up an acorn. Now, if, if I were to explain to you what this acorn is, I could say, I found it on the ground. And I could say it's kind of pointed on one end and it's got this little cap on the other end. And the cap is kind of corrugated and rough, and the pointed end is smooth, and the cap is darker, and the smooth is lighter colored. And squirrels gather this in the fall, and they eat it in the winter. And that's what an acorn is. Now, I just told you many true things about the acorn. But I neglected to tell you about something that you need to know in order to really know what the acorn is about. What did I neglect to mention? I, I didn't, its purpose, I, I didn't mention the oak tree, right? I, if, if you don't know how this is connected to its mature form, I can say many true things about it. And you still don't understand what it's really about. Here? may just be seed. Here's another seed, if you can imagine in your mind's eye. Here's another seed. This acorn is the commandment, you shall not steal. Now, this commandment occurs in the Decalogue. Moses gives it. The commandment that you shall not steal appears again in the New Testament, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians. 
Always in the Bible, stealing is wrong. It's a bad thing. The Bible says not only shall you not take other people's possessions, you shall not take anything that is not your own. You shall not even take another person's reputation. If it's not yours, you have no right to take it. Stealing's bad. Don't do it. Now, was there anything untrue that I just said? No, it it was all true. But somehow Paul says in Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It was our pedagogue, the thing that came along to lead us to... Wait a second, it just said don't steal. How does that get you to Jesus? Well, let's just ask a couple of basic questions. First question is, if God says, do not steal, what does that tell me about God? If God gives a commandment that I should not steal, what does that tell me about the nature of God? Your turn. (laughs) God says, don't steal. What does that tell me about God? Brandon? Say? He doesn't steal. It's beyond his ethical character to do so. Okay, if it's outside of God's character to steal, what else do we know about God? Who's he concerned about? His people. He's protecting relationships. He's protecting their possessions. He's loving. If it's beyond his character to hurt his people or to have them steal or himself to steal, I also learned something about ultimately God's character. What is it? He is holy. God is holy. I understand that from the commandment. What do I understand about me from the commandment? You shall not steal. You shall not take little things. You shall not take big things. You're never to take anything that is not your own, not even somebody's reputation. You're not to demean other people. Stealing's bad. Don't do it. What do I learn about me? (laughs) That I'm a thief. That's exactly right. That we're all thieves. Now, listen, here's a problem. God's holy and I'm a thief. There's a problem here. And I can't fix it. The law is telling me that. You got a problem. And you can't fix it. Because the God who gave the law is not going to find your behavior acceptable. You can't make your behavior acceptable to him. Somehow the God who gave the requirement is going to have to meet the requirement for you. Oh, the law was our pedagogue to lead us to Christ. Now, all I did, I, I didn't look at the commandment just saying, all right, what's, what's the tense of the verb? And, you know, what is this in Hebrew? And where is the, I've got to do all that still. But I've got to look at the text in its redemptive context. Why could Paul do that? He said, wait, the message isn't done. As God was revealing himself back there through the law... He was also leading us to understand something else, what he would have to do through Christ. Therefore, if I'm interpreting that same passage, those same laws, those same character reference, I've got to do the same thing. I've got to say, how is that revealing redemptive truth as part of the revelation and context and asking basic questions like, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about me? Are ways that that will happen. Just at the bottom of your notes on page two, to finish the thought, in the same sense as trying to explain an acorn, 
without mentioning the oak tree, we cannot properly explain any aspect of Revelation, even if we say many true things about it, until we have in some way related it to redemption. Okay, that's really Voss's point. That it's not enough just to say, here's a piece of Revelation. It's got to be related to redemption because that ultimately is its context. In the biblical record, it's got a redemptive context. Page three. What are the implications of such a redemptive perspective? The first is this, that divine provision is necessary for holy living. Since all scripture is redemptive revelation addressing our fallen condition, that is our inadequacy, our incompleteness, then we must recognize in some way every passage points not only to our need of redemption, but also to God's provision of our redemption. Get that? Somehow the scripture is not just pointing to our need of redemption, but also to God's provision of our redemption. The Bible is not a self-help book. Now, I say that easily, and I said that in a lecture some years ago, and a student then brought me a photocopy of a recently published Bible. I'm going to ask Kyle, read me what it says in the subtext. The Living Bible, and then what? The self-help edition. (laughs) You kind of go, oh, no, they missed something. Um, The Bible is not a self-help book. Even if you have a self-help edition, it's not a self-help book. How do I know that? Jesus said, John 15, what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that has tremendous implications for our preaching, right? If all I have said to people is, you go out and do it. God said, don't steal, so don't. I may not have intended to, but I just preached from the self-help edition. Because I provided no other means of help. I isolated the message to the text without mentioning its redemptive context. And context is all we really just keep pushing for here. Um, Number two, under implications. Biblical theology is therefore necessary for proper interpretation. If I recognize that holiness requires God's help, then, then biblical theology has to come into play. That which keeps pointing me toward God's provision for what God is requiring me to do. Calvin said it this way, and here's a a long quote from his sermon on Ephesians 2. He says, we must gather that to profit much in the Holy Scripture, we must always resort to our Lord Jesus Christ and cast our eyes upon him without turning from him at any time. You will see a number of people who labor very hard indeed at reading the Holy Scriptures. They do nothing else but turn over the leaves of it. Do you, do you kind of see the image? They're, they're just turning the leaves. They don't really know why they're doing it. They're just turning the leaves of it, he says. And why? Because they do not have any particular aim in view. They only wander about. Although they've gathered together a number of sentences of all sort, yet nothing of value results from them. Even so, it is with them that labor in reading his holy scriptures and do not know which is the point they ought to rest on, namely, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that all Scripture is inspired 
by the Holy Spirit. That holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the Spirit. But Jesus tells us in John 14 and 16 what the Holy Spirit's job is. He said the Spirit is to testify of what? Me. He said the Spirit is to testify of me. That's his task. So as the Spirit is inspiring the Scriptures, what, you have to say, what is his task? It is to be revealing the work of God in Christ. That's why revelation is inseparably related to the activity of redemption. These things are working together, that work of the Holy Spirit. And why Calvin could say, and really, do you all know this? I mean, Calvin typically is not thought of as being in the biblical theological movement. He's kind of a precursor to it. But you see these kinds of sentences, these kinds of paragraphs. And man, what, what a, a wonderful kind of insight he had. Why he is so valuable to us. He somehow seemed to be able to see that the elements in themselves could not function unless they were related to the redemptive message. A little bit later in the semester, I'm going to ask you to read from the Institutes Calvin's understanding of the law. And remember, Calvin is the one who gives the three uses of the law. And between Lutherans and Roman Catholics and Calvinists, you know, we always talk about the different uses of the law. But what sometimes is missed, and what I'll try to kind of perk your eyes to see as you go through, is how Calvin doesn't just talk about the three uses of the law. He ties all the uses of the law to the revelation of Christ. And, and we, we hardly ever talk about that piece of Calvin. And yet he was, he was doing it even as he talked about the uses of the law. Not Calvin, but kind of one who says it in a very pithy way is uh, Jay Adams. And I know and you know that you didn't get the word soon enough for this lecture to do the readings ahead of time. And uh, so you don't have your paper assignments ready and all that sort of thing. Uh, two quick words. You just all get F's. No, uh, no you, don't, you won't have to do it. But remember, it will say in all of your assignments, you'll be tested on that material before September 15th. So there will be a, an online test that will be available to you. And I would suggest you wait till the four lectures are done. <laughs> and then there's a, an online test and it will include those readings. So even though you will not turn in a little reflection paper, I still encourage you to do the readings. Um, and your professors will tell you more about that. But for the moment, just note this. This is Jay Adams, one of the readings that would have been for today. He writes this. It is easy to become moralistic when preaching. Now, he's just dealing with that notion of the need for redemptive understanding of the text. He says it's easy to become moralistic when preaching. He said, while there's nothing wrong with preaching morality, I mean, obviously you don't want to preach the opposite of morality. There's nothing wrong with preaching morality. In contrast, he says, moralism is legalistic, ignores the grace of God, and replaces the work of Christ with self-help. Now, it's that ignores the grace of God that I want you to have kind of ringing in your ear. Okay? Tell people what to do, but you just ignore the grace of God. That's when it becomes moralistic rather than moral. He says the problem with this kind of preaching is the lack of recognition that there is no merit in keeping God's commands. Do you know that? There's absolutely no merit in keeping God's commands. When you've done all that you should do, what does Jesus say you are? An unprofitable servant. Um, Isaiah tells us our best works are only what? Filthy rags. 
There is no merit in keeping God's commands, or else Christ's death would not have been necessary. Is there blessing in keeping God's commands? Surely there is blessing. If I am faithful to my spouse, there is blessing in keeping God's commands. But God does not love me more because I do better than the next guy. God loves me because of the work of Christ, not the merits of my work. Therefore, Adam says this. If you preach a sermon that would be acceptable to the members of a Jewish synagogue or a Unitarian congregation, there is something radically wrong with it. Now, hear that. If you preach a... Would any Jew be upset if you said, don't steal? Be faithful to your spouse. Any Unitarian upset? And yet here is Adam saying, there's something wrong with this message. And the message that it's wrong is revealed by the fact that the Jew and the Unitarian are not upset. He says this. There is something distinctive in a Christian message. And what makes it distinctive is the all-pervading presence of a saving and sanctifying Christ. Jesus Christ must be at the heart of every sermon you preach. This is just as true of edificational preaching as it is of evangelistic preaching. You know, we know we have to mention Jesus on the evangelistic sermons preached once a quarter, right? But he's actually saying in the edificational sermons, where you're saying, here's how to pray better. Here's how to be good to your wife or to your neighbor. He's, even in those, if Jesus is out of the message, apart from him you can do nothing. So there has to be this understanding, the provision of God, as part of the message, or it is not even Christian. I'll ultimately say here in a few minutes, the, the problem with the messages that are only instructive do these things, is not that they haven't quite reached the threshold of a Christian message. You know, we, they're just kind of sub-Christian. They haven't quite met the standard yet. They're not merely sub-Christian. They are anti-Christian. Every other faith in the world says it's what you do that fixes it spiritually with God. Christianity is the one that says you cannot fix it spiritually. That's the uniqueness of the Christian message. So to simply say to people, do better, do more, straighten up, fly right, be more disciplined, all of those messages are not just sub-Christian. They are actually pushing people away from the Savior to their own self-effort. And that is why they are actually contrary to the message of the gospel, not just failing to reach its full potential. As you uh, continue down on page three there, this could all just be good theory. But you also see, number three, redemptive interpretation is necessitated by biblical instruction. First Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul said, I resolve to make nothing known among you but Jesus Christ and what a good guy he was and how you can be really good if you try really. Resolve to make nothing known among you but Jesus Christ and him. Now, that's an amazing... We almost want to argue with Paul. Now, that's not true, Paul. You talked about worship practices. You talked about stewardship. You talked about marriage relationships. You talked about lots of other things but Jesus and him crucified. 
But apparently in Paul's mind, there was always this core, there was always this heart, this thread that's moving through all the messages. In fact, I think you'll begin to see it, right? Even in the way the epistles are formed. Before Paul gets to the marriage instructions, what does he say? That a man should love his wife as Christ loved the church. That, that there's this thread. That you will get the doctrinal instruction which will say, God has loved you with an everlasting love through his son, before he will say, therefore, love one another. There's always this redemptive context, this core, this heart, which is why Paul didn't, I don't think, feel he was being false in any way to say, I wasn't going to preach anything to you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is this atonement message, this provision of God that is always in view as Paul is preaching. He said in this chapter just preceding, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentiles. No Jew is upset by saying, don't steal. No Jew is upset by, don't take the Lord's name in vain. What, what was the stumbling block is he said, you are thieves. You are adulterers. And Christ had to die for you. That was the, the disturbing message that made the gospel message so much a stumbling block. Jesus himself would say such things is described in Luke 24, 27. The scene is after the resurrection, Jesus walking with the disciples, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And there we read, beginning with Moses and all the disciples, he explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, for a biblical theologian, those alls are all important. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he said what was in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, look at the note. Since Jesus says all scripture is about him, when we try to explain a text without mentioning his redeeming work, we neglect to expound the very thing Jesus said the text reveals. I mean, that's a rather amazing hermeneutical principle, right? He says it's about him. So if we're explaining the text and fail to relate it to him, we fail to say the very thing he said it's about. Not to mention Jesus is to fail. Well, let's put it another way. Not to relate the text to Jesus is to fail to say what the text is about. Here's where the title of a book can get you in trouble. When, when people look at the title Christ-Centered Preaching, what they almost always think initially is that what I'm saying and other people like me are saying who are biblical, theologically oriented is you've got to somehow show where every text mentions Jesus. You know, it, I don't get it. Is he in that camel track or behind that bush over there? Where, where, where are you getting Jesus? And you see, that's not the point at all. The point is not to force text to mention Jesus. It's to identify where the text stands in relation to Jesus. Where does the text stand in relation to what God will be accomplishing in his son? The visual representation of this is Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Remember, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus in the cloud. Moses is representing what? The law. Elijah is representing the prophets. And, and here is Jesus. They appear with him and say, this is the culmination. This is the climax. This is what this has been about. So they come to give testimony of what they represent to him. It's all been leading up to. It's all been driving toward 
what he now represents. Jesus would tell the Pharisees, remember, you diligently study the scriptures, but you do not know on what they concur. They speak of me. That's John 5, 39 through 40. Paul would later write in Acts 20 as he's giving the summation of his own ministry. The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of grace. That's my task. My task is to testify to the gospel of grace. The key note at the bottom, therefore, is this. These verses and others like them demonstrate that the term Christ-centered is synecdoche. Remember what that means, the part for the whole? Synecdoche. The term Christ-centered is synecdoche for all of God's redeeming work that makes us know and depend upon his grace ultimately provided in Christ. A Christ-centered sermon does not attempt to make Jesus appear where the text does not speak of him but rather demonstrates the relation, demonstrates the relation of the text to his person and or work. Thus, these are also referred to as redemptive messages or Christ-centered messages. Or, excuse me, grace-focused messages. Next page. Our goal in Christ-centered preaching is not to make Jesus magically or allegorically appear in every text, but rather to demonstrate the redemptive principles, the redemptive principles evident in the text that are most fully revealed in Christ's person and or work and are necessary for our growth in Christ's likeness. No, people will get so concerned because they will say, you can't mention Jesus in this sermon because the text doesn't mention him. And I say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You live this side of the cross. You, you were given the biblical theology, the biblical record of everything that has led to this point. Why, if you understand that all those things were leading to him, that when you preach from one of those passages that you know was intended to lead, that you can't mention him. Somehow God is revealing redemptive principles here. He's not saying, "Uh uh-oh, Elijah met the enemies of God at the crossroads. Crossroads, crossroads, crossroads. And Jesus met our enemy at a crossroad. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God somehow is saying, I provide for a faithless people through my faithfulness. Now, ultimately, we're going to see how that's done in Christ. But right here, I'm just saying, Elijah is ministering at a time when the people of God have turned away from God. And still, God is providing his strength and their weakness, his faith and their faithlessness. There are grace principles on display here. So when Christ ultimately completes his mission, we'll understand what that's about. So what I'm doing in these grace principles is I'm not looking for Wordplay, crossroads relates to the cross. You know, Moses met the women, daughters of Jethro at a well, and Jesus met a woman at the well. You know, we're not doing that. Rahab's cloth was what colored? It's red, and therefore it symbolizes the... Just saying, wait, God delivered his people when they could not deliver themselves. One of those people that he made his own was a prostitute. And when all the town fell, he rescued her, despite her sin, despite her iniquity. There was grace toward one totally undeserving. 
I'm not making Jesus' blood appear in the red cloth. I'm saying here are grace principles on display that will reach their culmination in the ministry of Christ. And I understand what he's done by what God has been revealing all along. We will talk much more about how we discern these things next time. Okay? Today's message, I hope I'm just trying to say to you, it's necessary to see the redemptive development of Scripture. That's all I'm trying to say today. It's necessary to see the redemptive message developing in Scripture to properly interpret it. Next time, we're going to talk, how do you do it then? The hows come next time. Just now, I'm trying to say, why do this? Why look at it? Why is it necessary? Before we maybe go down the path of forming those redemptive messages, Roman numeral four on page four just talks about the nature and design of non-redemptive messages. Just, Just learning to recognize what is not going to be faithful to the revelation of God's redemptive in all the scriptures. The nature of non-redemptive messages, they are inevitably sola bootstrapsa. Okay? You pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's your job. You just get going, brother. Right? It's the sola bootstrapsa message that we're going to try to avoid. It can come in various forms. You know, pick up yourself by your own bootstraps or ten steps to a better fill-in-the-blank. Financial future. Ten steps to a better relationship with your neighbor. Ten steps to a better marriage with your... You know, here are ten things you do to fix something. And God's work is just kind of off on the side somewhere. It's it's just what you do according to this verse and this verse and this verse. It's all about you. That's the problem. It's not all about you. Not the scriptural message. All these forms of solo bootstraps that say, do this thing or this behavior to get yourself right with God. The basic problem again, these are not merely sub-Christian messages. They are anti-Christian messages. Since no scripture in context, and that's the key word, no scripture in context says, just be good and God will be happy. You just be good and God will be happy with it. No scripture says that. The thing we do at times is we, we create this kind of false dichotomy. And we have in our minds kind of what separates Christianity is, you know, there, there is uh, legalism on one side of something that's wrong, and there is liberalism on the other side of what's wrong. And somehow true Christianity is going to be a balance in here of, of those things. But I want you to think about something. If you, if you said, theologically, what does a legalist say will make you right with God? What, is it, what does a legalist say will make you right with God? Your works. And in this society, for the legalistic side, what, what kind of works typically are those? Don't go to bad movies. Uh, don't cuss. Take your hat off in class. Wear a tie. <laughs> you know. I do have you in class this semester, right, Ken? <laughs> uh, what does a liberal say will make you right with God? True theological liberal. Okay, so it's, it's uh, care for the poor. Oppressed, your fellow man, etc. Now, while these sets of behaviors are very different, what I want you to recognize is these are actually the same thing. These fold back on themselves. This says what you do makes you right with God. 
And this says what you do makes you right with God. This is just a different set of do's, but the same theology is in play. What I want you to recognize is Christianity can't be found on that scale. It's something else entirely. It is not what you do that fixes things. It must be dependence on what Christ has done. And if, if, you, both, if you believe that, it profoundly affects your preaching and what you're willing to say as you preach. To, to think about it in just some very basic terms, the design of non-redemptive messages, what I will call how do you recognize messages that just are not redemptive at all, are recognizing these deadly bees. You've heard of the killer bees. These are the deadly bees. Messages that just can be automatically recognized as non-redemptive. Though I will tell you guys, I have preached these messages. I teach this material and sometimes I walk down from the pulpit and go, what did I just do? You know? Because it's so easy just to do these profoundly simple behavior-oriented messages. The, the first form of a deadly bee are be-like messages. Be-like messages. Follow this example. Be like Daniel. In fact, dare to be like Daniel. Be like David. Be like Moses. Or you really want to make people feel bad. <laughs> just be like Jesus. Just Go ahead. Just, just be like Jesus. Now, think of how these messages go. We look, at, we look at a portion of David's life. And we say, you know... He fought the lion and the bear. He walked with God. He wrote tremendous poems praising God. He led God's people. He was a man after God's own heart. He showed mercy to Mephibosheth. You know, David was a wonderful guy. You should just be like David. Well, ignore that Bathsheba thing. And ignore that Absalom thing. And... Forget about that thing about numbering the troops at the end of his life. Do you recognize the Bible takes care to tarnish almost every figure? Almost everyone. I mean, I recognize there's a couple of people we don't have much dirt on. But, <laughs> you know, virtually everybody. You know, the patriarchs were, were scoundrels. The apostles were cowards. Why do we see such terrible sin in the heroes of the Bible? So we'll say, isn't God... Great. Isn't his grace marvelous? Were it not for God, David's sin would have toppled a nation. But it was God who said, I will make an eternal kingdom through your line. Despite your great undeserving. Would David have said, just be like me? So if David wouldn't say it, we shouldn't either. If you could, I wish you could almost put neon lights around that kind of bold-faced blank in your notes, which is simply to say this. God is the hero of every text. God is the hero of every text. Gideon is not the hero. He was an idolater. Um, Abraham was not the hero. He gave away his wife over and over to other men. And his children did the same thing. And yet God preserved and used him. And we're here because God was faithful when he was not. God is the hero of the text. We keep pointing to God's work in men's behalf. Second form of non-redemptive message. Be good messages. These are various forms of save yourself message. Don't drink or smoke or chew or go with the girls that do. Would be the mark of a, 
legalist of the past generation. Sadly, in our current context, you get certain churches who are very much out of evangelical circles pushing nothing but social agendas. It's, it's that, that message that says discipleship is not faith in Jesus Christ. It is doing what Christ said. And so it used to be the social gospel of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s now being adopted by some evangelicals. What really proves you're a Christian is you care for the poor more than the next church. You welcome unlovely people more than the next church. And what is the mark of discipleship is not faith in Christ, but the outperformance of other churches with regard to good discipleship. Now, they're typically things that we respect and like, so we kind of admire the message. But it can be just another form of legalism. You be really, really, really good, even sacrificially good, and you'll be okay with God. And not recognize it's been around before. We've heard the message before. And it is not the one of grace. Hunker down and try harder in any form is not what God in his gospel is proclaiming. The third, and maybe most easy to our lips, are be disciplined messages. These are all about sanctifying yourself. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Go to church more. Especially go to my church more. <laughs> Just do more and more and more and more. And then God will be happy. By the way, how much more will be enough to make God happy? Do you know people like this? They sin and so what do they do to make it up to God? They read their Bible more. They go to church more. They sing songs louder this week in church. They're making it up to God by doing more than they did before. Now, listen, repentance truly shows itself in good works. It does. But the good works do not earn God's favor. They are the fruit of those who have been favored. And it's, it's totally counterinstinctive to the way humans function. To say, I am living out of grace, not to gain it. It sometimes is why it's so difficult to preach redemptive messages. Because it's so counterintuitive. I want to say, you straighten up or God's going to hate you. Instead of saying, God loved you before you ever knew him. While you were his enemy, he died for you. Therefore, live for him. It's counterintuitive. Now, I have to be careful here. I just uh, said some fairly stark things. You didn't challenge me even. Does Paul ever say, follow my example, be like me? Does Paul ever say that? Well, at least five times. So finish the verse. Follow my example as... See, it's got a redemptive context. Always, always, always there will be a redemptive context that we have to remember. Of course, B messages are inscription, but we always have to identify their context. Now, again, I wish you could put neon lights on the bottom sentence of this page. Recognize B messages are not wrong in themselves. They are wrong messages by themselves. Catch that? It, is it wrong to tell people don't steal? You know, don't be a thief. <laughs> is that wrong? Well, in itself, that's not wrong. To tell people, be holy as God is holy, is not wrong in itself. What makes it wrong is, by itself, if that's all you say, if you don't throw them upon Christ, upon His grace, upon His provision. 
Let me let's just be straight with one another. Why do people fear grace-oriented messages? The greatest fear among Orthodox Christians is they fear antinomianism. That's their fear. If you do too much of this grace thing, people will do whatever they want. Listen, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He was not an antinomian. At the same time, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The reason to preach grace is not to avoid the commandments. It's to enable obedience to them. So that we are saying it's by him, it's through him, it's for him that you would do these things. And it's, it's this compulsion of grace that's actually the power of the Christian message. It's, it's not antinomianism. We're going out. It's, it's like, oh, now I can't say to anybody, be something anymore. No, you can't say that alone. But you must actually tell. It would be actually terrible for a preacher not to tell people to obey God. I mean, what wounding we would do to them if we did not take them in a path of holiness. It's to their safekeeping. It's to their good. It's to their glory and blessing and joy to walk with God. But we have to make sure that they don't think they are earning God's favor by doing it. He was walking with them before they ever chose to be his children and do what he chose. Be messages. Last page. Be messages by themselves imply that we are able to change our fallen condition by our own efforts. Such messages, stated or implied, make us no different than Unitarians or Muslims or Hindus. If all we're saying is just be a good person, there's no distinctive Christianity in that at all. The demerits of non-redemptive messages, why they don't help, is first, there is no merit in keeping God's commands. Blessing, but no merit. And there are various passages that say that for you. You see Adams and Kuyper. The confession, first paragraph there, out of chapter 16, good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. But Christians' ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. That's why we can't just tell people, be good and be done. There has to be dependence pushed upon the work of God. Number two, challenges to holiness without mention of grace force a human-centered religion. People cannot do what they are told to do apart from from Christ's grace. Requirements of holiness by themselves wound people. Because without provision of divine aid, they either will despair of hope or trust in their own righteousness. Which is worse, by the way? It's a trick question. If you tell people, you just be holy. There's only two alternatives if you tell somebody to be holy. Either they think, I'll never be holy. I'll never measure up. What's the other alternative? Okay, I'll be holy. And either one is spiritually deadly. Desperation or arrogance are both spiritually deadly. They wound people if we have not mentioned grace. Thus, if you wound, even unintentionally, you are obligated to heal. We heal by wedding all requirements of holiness to a proper relationship with him who alone can provide holiness and showing where and how the scripture we are interpreting does the same. Think how Paul does it. Ephesians 6. Here Paul is at his most strident. Put on the full armor of God, right? Take out the sword of the Spirit. Put on the helmet of salvation. 
Resist the fiery darts of the devil. He's speaking with all the strength he can muster, but before he gets into any of that, what does he say? Be strong in the power of his might. His might. If all he had said was, you know, you just hunker down and try harder, it would have been foreign to the Christian message. So he says, fight. But you fight with his might. And what we want to say to God's people, what really makes it the joy of the Christian message, I'm going to say, fight. Live for him. By him. By his strength. By his wondrous grace. Which is revealed in the context of this text as well. Here's the bottom line. Where we're going to go. When you have preached or when you have counseled or when you've taught to your own child, at some point, this person that God has given you to minister to is going to walk out the door away from you. And I hope just in your mind's eye, you kind of say, I just sent them out to do what God requires. With whom do they go? Am I just sending them out with me, myself, and I in hand? We're going to do it. Or am I sending them out with the Savior? Because if they do not go with the Savior, they go to despair. But if we send them out with the Savior, they go to joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. We're going to talk a whole lot about how to do this next time. But as you read the readings, say to yourself, well, if not this, if if it's not redemptive, what is the alternative? And I think if you'll think of it that way, you'll say... There can't be any alternative. There can't be any alternative. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We have to learn how to have the grace of God within the message. And when you do it, there is such, such joy in your preaching that uh, will be your own power to keep doing it. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.